0: You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 41 of Girl Speak, our news roundup for August 2015. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. First up today, I am so excited to inform you again that Gamer Girl has launched. This exhibition is our largest to date and jam-packed with incredible stories, interviews, and videos of Gamer Girls. Journeying from the very first games of ancient Egypt to today's complex world of video, card, board, and role-playing games, we've discovered that girls have always been a part of gaming history and are the movers and shakers of gaming's future. The responses to this exhibit have been absolutely incredible and I am so humbled by the support you all have shown. Speaking of gamers, a new survey by Pew with additional research by Kotaku has shown that 60% of all teenage girls play games, including online, socially, and by themselves. Yet the voices of these girls are so often silenced, as the study found that only 9% of those teen girl gamers ever turn their microphones on while playing online. The study also found that girls are less likely than boys to play online on a regular basis. This is a shame since gaming provides so many benefits, especially when shared with friends. These include socialization skills, collaborative creativity, empathy, and the chance to develop friendships that can last a lifetime and even turn into real-world friendships. But the real picture here focuses on how girls don't use their voice chat in online games, with one of the reasons being that girls and women who turn on their mics are often the targets of major harassment and gender-based taunting. As a gamer girl myself, I can say that this is totally true. I can't tell you the number of times that I've turned off my mic or had to mute other players because of the harassment that I faced while playing games like Call of Duty. In fact, at some points... I've even played under male gamer names, just so I don't have to face that discrimination. As we explored in Gamer Girl, such harassment is a big deal. In some cases, it's even led to girls going into hiding and fearing for their lives. And it is a major social issue that we can and should address in our personal lives and as a society. Many of the comments on the Pew study echoed the voices in our exhibition detailing how gamer girls are only respected if associated with a male co-player or when objectified as the girlfriend of a guy playing the game. The responses also showed that it isn't just the negative attention that detracts girls from gaming. It's also the positive attention, ranging from random friend requests to stalking behavior and comments about their physical attributes, even though online gamers rarely show their real-life bodies in-game. This new study adds to the wealth of research in our exhibition and shows that the need for us to address sexism, misogyny, and gender-based harassment of all kinds in the gaming community is as relevant and pressing as ever. If you haven't checked it out yet, be sure to visit us at www.girlmuseum.org, click on View, and then Exhibits. You can also still contribute to our YI game gallery by sending your name, country, a photo of yourself or a favorite game character, and the answer to the question, why do you game to tiffany at girlmuseum.org that's t-i-f-f-a-n-y at girlmuseum.org. Another survey released this month is the Girls Attitudes Survey by Girl Guiding in the UK. The survey polled over 1,500 girls between the ages of 7 and 21 for their views on a range of issues. The full survey results will launch in September but Girl Guiding has given us a sneak peek about the fragile state of UK girls' well-being. The survey found that girls of all ages are experiencing problems with their mental well-being, with a quarter of girls aged 11 to 16 and over half of girls aged 17 to 21 stating that they needed help. The survey also found that health concerns have changed drastically. In 2010, girls' top health concerns were binge drinking, smoking, and drug abuse. Today, their concerns still include smoking, but focus on mental illness, depression, and eating disorders. The girls also revealed that they feel adults often fail to keep pace with new threats to their well-being, not recognizing the pressures they face, such as mental health, cyberbullying, and getting a job, and that they are unable to find adequate support for their well-being. The findings are interesting, especially given the rise of social media movements to combat things such as cyberbullying and raise awareness of mental health issues. Hopefully, the findings will be used to improve school and community services available to young girls in the UK and to spark discussion of girls' mental health and well-being. Notably, one of our pamphlets focuses on how to deal with bullying. We were inspired by a mother who contacted us looking for resources to share with her daughter, who was being bullied, which led to the creation of our pamphlet series. You can check it out on our website under the Learn section. Next, we follow up on the story of an 11-year-old girl in Paraguay who was raped by her stepfather and subsequently found to be pregnant because of it. The girl has given birth to her child after country authorities denied the girl's request for an abortion. The lawyer for the girl's mother has reported that there were no complications in the birth, the delivery was done by C-section, and that the mother and baby are fine. The girl's stepfather has been arrested and is currently awaiting trial, while her mother has been charged with negligence. Amnesty International responded to the birth by saying that they were glad the birth went well. But the fact that she did not die does not excuse the human rights violations she suffered at the hands of the Paraguayan authorities. The focus of protests in Paraguay has been on better protecting children from abuse, not on amending the country's laws to allow for abortions in the case of rape and underage pregnancy. This is truly a shame, as about 600 girls under the age of 14 become pregnant in Paraguay each year. Subsequently, girls face a lifetime of poverty and hardship, sacrificing their educations and future economic opportunities because they are forced to raise a child while they themselves are still children. Paraguay is a deeply religious country, and it would likely require the support of the Catholic Church in order to amend the laws. To date, the Church and many of its supporters have blocked legislation that would increase funding for sexual education, a key step in reducing the likelihood of childhood pregnancy. Now we turn to the hot topic of August, STEM, the acronym for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. It started with a new hashtag campaign, I look like an engineer. The campaign was launched by OneLogin, a cloud computing company that asked its employees to represent the company in a series of ads intended to recruit more engineers. Originally, Isis Wenger, an employee at OneLogin, was featured in an ad wearing a t-shirt and her glasses that stated, My team is great. Everyone is smart, creative, and hilarious. The ad was put up in San Francisco transit stations, but her ad attracted a cascade of negative comments on social media. Isis addressed this backlash in an article on Medium, which included comments that illustrate the sexism still prevalent in the STEM industries. Some thought she wasn't making the right face, or that her appearance isn't what female engineers look like. After the publication of her article, ISIS launched the hashtag campaign to challenge stereotypes of what engineers look like, intentionally including people across the gender and racial spectrum. Within two days, hundreds of engineers posted their pictures in support of diversity in the tech industry. And within a week, with over 86,000 tweets alone, the campaign expanded to an Indiegogo campaign started by ISIS's friend that would post billboards featuring photos of women and LGBTQ engineers. The campaign reached its fundraising goal, and then nearly tripled it within 24 hours. Also in STEM news, the Boy Scouts of America introduced their newest program, the Co-Educational STEM Scouts. This new program is a pilot program that blends scouting's time-tested character-building traits with hands-on STEM modules for boys and girls. The program is being conducted in the Great Smoky Mountain Council to children in the 3rd through 12th grades. The kids are grouped into laboratories that meet weekly after school for hands-on activities conducted in four- to six-week modules. Their activities also include field trips, interactions with STEM professionals, and a chance to publish their work in peer-reviewed scientific journals. You can get the latest on the new program by visiting stemscouts.org. Our final piece of STEM news is about teenage Az Fiat, who has discovered an inexpensive way to turn plastic trash into fuel. As discovered a cheap and plentiful catalyst called alumina silicate that drastically reduces the cost of converting plastic waste into the biofuel ethanol. Her process also releases other chemicals that can be recycled and sold. Her idea could drastically impact her home country of Egypt, which produces a million tons of plastic trash every year. It is estimated that her process could convert that trash into fuel worth the equivalent of 78 million dollars every year. Wow! She has been honored by the European Union Contest for Young Scientists and is currently working on a patent for her process. Another hot topic related to STEM is the continued focus on increasing gender diversity in a variety of other areas. One of these is the movie industry. Statistics for last year were recently released in the Inequality in 700 Popular Films study produced by the Media, Diversity, and Social Change Initiative at the University of Southern California. The study revealed that of the top 100 films in 2014, only 21 featured a female lead or co-lead. Yet when women were actually on screen, objectification and sexualization were rampant, with 12% of female characters depicted as caregivers, 20% more likely to be shown in sexy attire, and 17% likely to be nude or partially nude. Also of those 100 films, less than half of the portrayals of women were coded as LGB, and not a single film featured a transgender character. This means that the percentage of LGB characters in film is less than their population in the US. Also startling in the films was that 73% of the characters in those films were white. The statistics were even more horrid when looking at the writers and directors of films. Of the top 700 films between 2007 and 2014, women comprised only 2% of directors and 11% of writers. This matters because diversity behind the scenes leads to diversity in the scenes, and the appalling lack of women leading films contributes to the continued objectification and sexualization of female characters. Thankfully. There are organizations and individuals working to change the film industry. And great news out of Europe, where the European film industry has adopted a gender equality declaration that calls for policies to increase female representation at all levels, both on and off screen. The declaration was adopted during the Sarajevo Film Festival. Among its actions are including adopting equality policies to improve women's access to public film funding, appointing more women in decision-making posts within the industry, and doing more to enhance the visibility and recognition of female filmmakers. The declaration also encourages EU member states to produce and analyze gender-based statistics which will help members determine the causes of this inequality and work to address them. Now we turn to legal news for girls around the world. In Somalia, a new law has been introduced that bans female genital mutilation nationwide about 98 percent of women aged 15 to 49 have been victims of fgm in somalia according to data released by unicef which makes somalia the country with the highest prevalence of fgm in the world while the bill is still being drafted the somali minister for women's affairs has indicated that the country is hard at work trying to draft and pass the bill before potential elections next year once the law is implemented it must be matched with community-led programs to help reduce the stigma of not undergoing FGM and to amend traditional belief systems that dictate social attitudes. The new Somali constitution states, circumcision of girls is a cruel and degrading customary practice and is tantamount to torture. The circumcision of girls is prohibited. This is great news for girls worldwide because to see the country with the highest prevalence of this life-threatening practice legally ban it is to set an example to other nations of the world. Hopefully, it will not only be a new law which succeeds, but one that sends a ripple effect through the world, encouraging other nations to amend traditional customs and national laws to finally protect women and girls' right to sexual health. In Saudi Arabia, rejoicing is occurring as women will make history later this year when, for the first time, they will be allowed to vote. Along with the right to vote, Twenty-one women are now preparing to stand in the December elections as candidates. The right to vote comes amidst a culture deeply entrenched in a system of male guardianship, where women are forbidden from obtaining passports, marrying, traveling, driving, obtaining medical care, or accessing higher education without the approval of a male guardian. Recent strides have been made in changing that system, with the late King Aziz were allowing women to run for office and elect representatives in 2015 following social media protests four years ago. He also appointed women to the country's advisory body and allowed female athletes to compete in the London Olympics. His successor, King Salman, has continued to support the advancement of women by encouraging their participation in the labor force. The right to vote is yet another step for Saudi women, and we hope to continue to see strides in women's rights in the coming years. And in Uganda, the Supreme Court has ruled in a six-to-one vote that the custom of repaying the bride price after a marriage fails or ends is unconstitutional and should be banned. The Chief Justice stated, The refund of bride price connotes that a woman is on loan. This compromises the dignity of a woman. Bride price is a common custom in which a groom provides payment for a wife. Prior to this ruling, if a woman was to leave her husband, such as in cases of spousal abuse, the woman would have to repay the bride price. The human rights organization Mafumi brought the original case before the Supreme Court in 2007, arguing that bride price treats women like objects and should be outlawed. A 2009 study by the organization found that 99% of women who had experienced domestic violence believed that bride price played a role in their abuse. And pressured them to stay in dangerous situations. In many rural or impoverished areas, women and girls were married off to secure the resources provided by grooms, and these financial trades led to forced and child marriage. According to United Nations statistics, an estimated 40 percent of Ugandan girls are married before they are 18, often because parents want to get the bride price. Though the new ruling does not outlaw the practice of bride price, it is a step in the right direction, as it now makes it safer and more economically viable for women to leave abusive and potentially life-threatening marriages. It also begins the steps in ensuring that marriages do not take place solely for bride price, since grooms will now be unable to repossess their property should a marriage break. Experts at Mafumi note that change will be slow to come as equality is incorporated into tradition, but they are pleased with the High Court's decision. In related news, The Population Council has released its new findings for ending child marriage in Sub-Saharan Africa. The new evidence shares rarely available data on the cost of interventions that have been tested and issues recommendations to policymakers, donors, and organizations. Each year, more than 14 million girls worldwide are married before the age of 18. In Sub-Saharan Africa, 1 in 10 girls are married before the age of 15 and nearly half before the age of 18. The study found that simple, sustainable strategies work best. In Ethiopia, significant delays in child marriage were achieved in communities where girls were offered educational support, two chickens for every year that they remain unmarried and in school, and engaged in conversations about the value of educating girls and the harms of child marriage. In communities where all three strategies were implemented, girls aged 15 to 17 were two-thirds less likely to be married by the age of 18. The cost of implementing all three interventions was estimated to be only $44 per girl per year in Ethiopia and $117 per girl per year in Tanzania. A As senior associate Annabelle Erocor noted, Child marriage is not an intractable tradition. When families and communities recognize the harms of child marriage and have economic alternatives, they will delay the age at which their daughters get married. For less than $20 per girl, we can prevent a child in Ethiopia from getting married before she turns 15. The full report can be found at www.popcouncil.org. And in mid-August, we learned of an incredible 15-year-old girl who was able to resist child marriage. In a Humans of Bombay post that went viral, a young woman shares that, when she was 15, she was taken to meet the groom her parents had picked out for her. She stated, I made it clear that I couldn't get married. After we returned to Bombay, the boy's parents called, and it said that the boy had said no. My mother thought it was my fault, and that I did something. But the truth is that I didn't. To protect myself, I just said that I'll run away and tell the police. And if need be, I would have followed through with it. Later, when asked to marry a man with two children, she asked her parents how she could be a mother when she was still a child herself. "'Why don't you understand that if I study and earn for myself, I won't need to rely on anyone to survive?' she asked. Since then, she hasn't been asked about marriage. She dreams of becoming an IPS officer and proving that a girl doesn't need a man to lift her up. In fact, she's so strong that she alone can uplift others.' Under India's current laws, including the 2006 Prohibition on Child Marriage Act, it is illegal for girls under 18 and boys under 21 to marry, but the practice remains prevalent in rural areas. This viral post brings hope that girls in India are claiming their rights to personal and economic freedom. Also in India, girls' education has been a hot topic. In early August, it was announced that the world's first ever development impact bond has been issued to support the education of girls in India. This could open a new channel of funding for international development programs, modeled on social impact bonds and pay for success programs, that earn returns only if educational outcomes are achieved. Such bonds are 100% focused on outcomes achieved, helping to bring the focus to the impact of the money, rather than its returns, while still rewarding investors. Also in India, Fifteen-year-old Verma has just been accepted to the BBAU to earn her doctoral degree, making her the youngest PhD student in India. She has previously earned a Master's in Microbiology at the age of 13. She hopes to become a doctor, though her young age has caused some difficulty in getting permissions to attend school and take exams. Verma has spoken about some of her other difficulties, including coming from a family with tough financial constraints, and needing to receive hostile accommodations and scholarships to complete her studies. Verma has expressed interest in studying agricultural microbiology for her new degree. Also in education news, high schooler Rebecca Fried went viral when she proved a leading scholar on Irish history wrong. In 2002, history professor Richard Jensen published an article claiming that no Irish need apply signs were rare or non-existent in America a statement that would refute decades of belief that the Irish-Americans were actively discriminated against in job markets of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The thesis was used earlier this year to highlight popular myths of persecution complexes that are stand-ins for an entire narrative about how immigrants are treated in America. Rebecca read the article and ran Google searches about the Irish-American discrimination. She found droves of newspaper listings and further research that proved active discrimination and the existence of no Irish need apply signs. She collected her research and contacted history professor Kirby Miller, who confirmed their findings. Miller had long been trying to refute Jensen's arguments, but had faced discrimination of his own in doing so, being asked if he was Irish Catholic, implying that he might have personal biases interfering with his historical work. Miller read Rebecca's now thesis, and helped her and her father walk through publishing the scholarly article. Her article was printed on Independence Day as, No Irish Need Deny, Evidence for the Historicity of Nina Restrictions in Advertisements and Signs in the Oxford Journal of Social History. Dr. Jensen praised Rebecca for her hard work, but replied that she did not claim to find a single window sign anywhere in the USA. In truth, Rebecca did find those signs, and they are included and cataloged in her article. Her final reply to him was a note of thanks for the discussion, and made the point that even if only 15 recorded instances of the signs per year, or 1,500, existed as advertisements and signs stating, no Irish need apply, the signs did exist. The persecution was real, and the discrimination of the Irish was not an imagined feeling, but a difficult reality. Rebecca plans to continue her research, exploring other areas where digitized newspaper evidence might supply new historical insights and she's only now starting high school. Now we turn to the kidnapped Chabot girls, still held captive by Boko Haram in Africa. In early August, Nigerian President Buhari and lawmakers promised to intensify their efforts to ensure the safe return of the girls during a visit by U.S. Congresswoman Federica Wilson. Wilson encouraged Nigerians to put pressure on elected officials to deliver on promises and to strongly unite against Boko Haram. In late August, it was announced that an advocacy group in Washington, D.C. is raising funds to keep 10 girls who escaped from Boko Haram in American schools. Two of the girls have already been accepted to four-year universities, but lack the resources and family to support and help ensure they complete their educations. The group, Education Must Continue, is currently running a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for the girls' tuition and basic needs. They are seeking to raise $75,000 and, as the time of writing, have raised only $225. August 27th marked 500 days since the kidnappings in Chibok in northern Nigeria. As part of the various events marking this anniversary, the Executive Director of UN Women released a statement which stated, The Chibok girls' lives matter. Their situation is our shared problem as a global community. The humanitarian impact of Boko Haram is growing by the day. Thousands are displaced, swelling the numbers of refugees in the region. Violent extremism is one of the greatest peace and security threats we face globally at present, hallmarked by the targeting of women and girls, the use of trafficking for funding sources, and sexual violence as a tactic of terror. Our response must therefore include prevention efforts directly addressing the drivers of extremist violence with an aim of building resilient families and communities. UN Women applauds the Buhari administration in their efforts to put an end to the situation of child abduction that continues to afflict the northern regions of Nigeria. We are encouraged by the mounting news of releases of abducted girls. With the support of the global community, we can counter this scourge of violence in the region. To build societies that are conflict resilient and able to permanently address the root causes of extremist violence requires investing in policies and programs that support good governance and sustainable development. By definition, this must involve policies and programs that empower women as decision makers and partners. We congratulate the government on the passage last May of the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Bill. We encourage the state and local governments to enact this in their states and localities, to make budget allocations to prevent and respond to violence against women, and to build a strong foundation of human rights. Nigeria cannot do this alone, nor should it have to. We must all do more to protect girls, as well as boys, who are at risk in areas affected by Boko Haram, including protecting their right to security, life, and education. We must support the reintegration of those rescued and ensure that they are welcomed and supported, not stigmatized. Many need access to comprehensive care services, including support for trauma and health impacts, as well as income-generating skills. In this respect, I call on the international community to step up efforts to support national authorities in addressing their needs. During this global week of action in commemoration of the Chibok girls, we join the call of UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to unconditionally release the Chibok girls and the many children and adults kidnapped in the Northeast. We must consider that these are not just Nigeria's children. They are our children. In the spirit of what is termed in many parts of Africa as Ubuntu, Where my neighbor's child is my child. On this day, we, the global community, must stand with our Chabot girls. We must remember them each day and do all that we can to help increase efforts to rescue those who remain in captivity. We must also, on a practical level, support Nigeria and the global community to prevent the spread and influence of extremist groups such as Boko Haram. No child should have to fear going to school. No child should ever have to fear being a child, and no child should ever have to fear being a girl. Finally, we turn to our incredible girls of August. First is 10-year-old Alzain Tariq of Bahrain, who competed in the 50-meter butterfly event at the World Championships of Swimming, making her the youngest swimmer to ever do so. She finished last, but the experience brought her closer to achieving her goal of qualifying for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo and proved that she is an incredible inspiration to girls everywhere. Another incredible swimmer at the championships was 18-year-old Katie Ledecky of the United States, who lowered her own world record by 2.23 seconds in winning the 1500 freestyle. She touched in at 15 minutes, 25.48 seconds. There's also 17-year-old Kritika Singh, founder of the nonprofit organization Malaria Free World. Her nonprofit is dedicated to supporting malaria eradication efforts and raising awareness about malaria. As she stated in an interview with the Huffington Post, in July 2014 as part of a summer internship I was assigned to write a grant proposal for the National Institutes of Health to get funding for a new project. During the process I was writing the background when I was shocked by the realization that malaria is one of the oldest and deadliest diseases in human history, and it's still around in killing over 600,000 people every year. According to some studies, malaria is responsible for half of all human deaths in history. I was surprised that as a teenager growing up in America, I did not have much knowledge of this global epidemic. I wondered how many other kids might also be totally oblivious to this fact. I realized that we mostly the youth, have underestimated this epidemic for ages. Though we have attempted various treatments, successfully eliminated malaria in some parts of the world, and contained the spread of malaria in many other parts, the disease continues to infect 300 million people every year, and half of those it kills are a combination of children under 5 and pregnant women. After these realizations, I took it as a mission to educate the youth about malaria and inspire them to pursue interest in diseases such as malaria so that this can be the generation during which we can finally defeat it." Kritika is currently interning with the Harvard School of Public Health and researching malaria. She hopes to move into researching the disease in a clinical setting and collaborating on the socioeconomic challenges that hinder infectious disease eradication. Our final incredible girl is Zoe Friedman, who has had enough with the tampon tax. In a university paper, Zoe stated, it's about time that the federal government recognizes that even the most basic health care needs to start subsidizing the cost of tampons and pads for women, or covering the cost completely. This is only fair since health insurance is supposed to cover the major aspects of a person's health. But more importantly, cutting the cost of these products is a crucial step in normalizing menstruation within society, and it provides women who may not have access to these resources the opportunity to feel clean and comfortable during their period her article came under fire, making her the target of cyberbullying and harassment by trolls. In a follow-up post, she addressed this trolling, stating, I didn't know so many men also felt so passionately about women's access to tampons. Quite honestly, I was blown away by the number of men who took the time out of their day to voice their opinions on this subject. I was particularly impressed by how many men focused their insults on my gender, obviously missing my point, or maybe proving my point about the gender inequality still present in such basic areas. Women are disproportionately dismissed with hate instead of giving honest consideration when their opinions diverge from the mainstream. And for what reason? Simply for being female and therefore being considered less worthy of a respectable discussion or reasonable disagreement. We're totally in agreement with Zoe. Only five states in the U.S. deem tampons and pads as necessities. And in most women's bathrooms, you have to pay for feminine hygiene products in contrast to the free soap, water, and toilet paper. It's time for change. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on September 11th, where we will be looking back to some incredible queens in celebration of a very special event. Also, please help to support future production of Girl Speak by visiting our Podbean site at girlmuseum.podbean.com and clicking Support Girl Speak. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation, easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.